Almost everyone knows about John chapter 3. This is the famous conversation between Jesus and a leading rabbi who ought to have known what born again or born from above meant, but did not, as you find in verses 9 to 11 of John 3. Nicodemus, fearful about being seen by his friends associating with the unorthodox or questionable rabbi Jesus, had come by night. Nicodemus was honest enough to know that no one could possibly have done the amazing miracles Jesus did unless the true God was with him and had commissioned him. That's to say that he had come from God, as verse 2 says. That is commissioned by God, not remotely meaning, of course, that Jesus was alive before he was born. Jesus gave a most basic lesson. Unless we are born again, or born from above, that is, from God's creative activity, we cannot ever see or experience the kingdom of God. That is, we cannot be saved. We cannot understand the kingdom now, and we will not gain immortality in the kingdom when Jesus comes back. These are huge issues. The only ones, in fact, that ultimately count. Jesus made the rebirth from water and spirit a condition for tasting the power of the kingdom now and gaining immortality in the future kingdom. Israel's scripture, and Nicodemus ought to have known this, spoke of an outpouring of spirit in Isaiah chapter 32, verses 15 to 18. He and Israel should have known about the renewing effect and power of spirit. The Hebrew Bible is full of marvelous prophecies for a bright and brilliant future for Israel and the world after punishment. Isaiah had foreseen that one day from the heights of heaven, a spirit will breathe into us till the downs grow like an orchard and the orchard like a forest. Justice fills the very downs and honesty the orchards. And justice brings us peace and quiet. Honesty renders us secure. My people will have homes of peace and rest in houses undisturbed. Ah, happy folk. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 32, verses 15 to 18, the Moffat translation. This was the promised rebirth, renewal, reset from above by Spirit, which Jesus announced in advance of the worldwide appearance of the kingdom of God. If we want to be in that kingdom, when it comes at the second coming, then we must be reborn now. We must receive the spirit of new life and be fit to inherit the kingdom of God when Jesus reappears. Regeneration, rebirth, must happen to us now in advance of the great renewal of the world. Jesus spoke of this coming regeneration of the whole world in Matthew chapter 19, 
verse 28, and Paul in Titus 3, verse 5, teaches our need for renewal through washing and rebirth through Holy Spirit. This unspeakably wonderful event of the future is aptly called the exceedingly great reward promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 1. Jesus and Paul, of course, taught exactly the same saving gospel and both knew of Isaiah 51 16 and Isaiah chapter 65 verses 17 to 25 where we read of the great coming new society on earth the new heavens and earth a new world order with its capital at Jerusalem all of this material and information is kingdom gospel material to be believed in response to the command that we are to repent and believe God's gospel of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Jesus and Paul were intensely conscious of an accompanying text in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1, which reads, one day a king will reign in justice with princes who rule uprightly. In view of today's sickening news of international murder and warfare, this is the only good news or gospel with ultimate meaning. Our destiny, as a mass of scripture says, is to assist Jesus in the organizing and administration of that coming new society on earth. Christianity was and is never about, quote, going to heaven as a disembodied spirit when you die. It was and is always about inheriting and possessing and administering the renewed land and earth. Matthew chapter 5 verse 5, Revelation 5 verse 10, and Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6. Administering the renewed land with Jesus and all the faithful of all the ages when Messiah returns. To make your point, ask your friend, where are you hoping to be in the future? He or she will predictably say, I hope to be with Jesus in heaven. Then counter with this. Why do you want to go to heaven when Jesus won't be there? Many churchgoers are very far from having the Bible's view of the future. Much less do they grasp the Christian destiny, the point of our present training and tribulation in view of our election to royal office in the future kingdom. Do you frequently meditate on Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, and Revelation 5, verse 10? Jesus has constituted the true believers a kingdom of priests. Revelation 1, verse 6. And they will rule as kings upon the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. 
the camp of the saints will be on the earth. Revelation 20, verse 9. Daniel 7, verses 18, 22, and 27 are key passages for presenting the gospel. The time will come when, and here's the quotation, the saints will possess the kingdom and all nations and people will serve and obey them. Daniel 7 verse 27. I will repeat this since so little is known of these amazing propositions. The kingly power, the sovereignty and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people or saints of the Most High. Their kingly power will last forever and every realm will serve and obey them. Daniel 7 verse 27 in the Revised English Bible. Ask your pastor to preach extensively on all of this. For participation in immortality and rulership in the coming peaceful kingdom of God on earth, we must be born again, Jesus said. Is John the only writer to have dealt with this very basic theme? Certainly not. Matthew and Mark and Luke were just as impressed with the all-important issue of rebirth, and they record how Jesus treated the same subject by speaking of the seed which must lodge in our hearts for new birth to occur. This is an agricultural picture, well known to us all, even those of us who are not professional farmers. I am blessed, however, to be married to a master gardener. Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, used the biological idea of rebirth by seed, that's to say, gaining a new parentage. Many of your friends have been told that being born again involves accepting Jesus in your heart. This concept is often very vague and open to all sorts of imaginative guesses. It lacks entirely the clarity and specificity of the kingdom gospel teaching of Jesus. Jesus, you see, begins his ministry by calling on all to repent because the kingdom of God is approaching. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And this is expressly called the beginning of the gospel. Mark 1, verse 1. More than that, Mark calls this gospel preaching of Jesus the announcing of God's gospel. Mark 1, verse 14. There's no higher authority than that. People in the days of Jesus knew what the kingdom of God meant. It signified the great time coming when God would install his elected Messiah on the restored throne of David in Jerusalem, resulting in world peace and international disarmament. 
Luke 1 verse 33, Luke 2 verse 25, Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, Acts 1 verse 6, and so on. Billy Graham, however, wrote that the Christian hope is to, and I quote, polish rainbows in heaven and prepare heavenly dishes. He wrote that in the book Hope for the Troubled Heart. This, we think, should alert readers to how very far some have moved from the biblical mind of Christ. God's gospel is a wonderfully unifying key phrase and title in the New Covenant. Jesus announced God's gospel, Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. He did not just, quote, share the gospel or suggest it. He commanded, a matter of obedience then, he commanded belief in that gospel of the kingdom and no other. Paul framed his whole teaching in Romans by calling it God's gospel. Romans 1 verse 1 and Romans 15 verse 16. Paul often preached God's gospel without financial charge. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 7. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 2, 8 and 9 and 1 Peter 4 verse 17, God's gospel is the most dramatic piece of information for all mankind. Jesus announced this kingdom and then followed with these imperative words. Repent, as to say change your mind and your life radically and believe that gospel about the kingdom. The command is clear. We are ordered by Messiah to believe that gospel of the kingdom. We are to believe, in other words, in God's great world plan for us and everyone else. That's where the faith or belief begins. That's where the obedience of faith starts. Romans 1 verse 5 and Romans 16 verse 26. It includes, as we know now, belief, in the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus to atone for sins and, of course, his resurrection on the third day. Luke 24, verse 21. In addition, of course, is belief in Jesus' current session at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Messiah at the right hand is my Lord, in Hebrew, Adoni, not my capital L-O-R-D, as wrongly rendered in many versions. Jesus is rather my Lord, lowercase l, my Lord Messiah, the Messiah Lord of Luke 2 verse 11 and Luke 1 verse 43. My Lord, and compare with that John 20 verse 13. Jesus is certainly not Adonai, the Lord God, which would immediately shatter biblical monotheism. 
The simple truth about the gospel of salvation is very well encapsulated by Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. This teaches us that Jesus was the first and initial preacher of the gospel of salvation. This incomparably great salvation, and I quote, had its beginning, as the Greek states, in the gospel preaching of Jesus. Hebrews 5 verse 9 makes this simple proposition. Salvation is based on obeying Jesus. Jesus said exactly the same in John 3 verse 36. He lays out the stark choices before us, either to believe in the Son or to disobey him. To believe Jesus is to have the life of the age to come, vaguely and badly translated as eternal life. To disobey Jesus is to be under the wrath of God. John 3, verse 36. That is exactly why Paul defines true faith as the obedience of faith. Romans 1, verse 5. Faith is not real faith if it does not go hand in hand with obedience. And obedience without faith and belief in the gospel as Jesus and Paul preached it is not obedience. The command that we all be baptized in water to demonstrate our commitment to God and Jesus is also one of the non-negotiable requirements of the New Testament. Acts 2.38, Acts 8 verse 12, and so on. Think about how Bible writers make things doubly clear and emphatic. They frame their writing with the same key concept. In other words, they begin and end what they have to say by repeating the same idea. This is an excellent way to teach systematically and effectively. Note now how Jesus in the Beatitudes begins with a reference to the kingdom and completes a series of parallel sayings by referring to the kingdom. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 10. No wonder then that Jesus uttered these marvelous purpose statement gospel words. He said, Seek above all the kingdom of God and all its ways of doing right, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, verse 33. So also with the Lord's Prayer. The kingdom is at the beginning and the end. Jesus announced his own fundamental eye-opening career statement by saying, I must announce, that's to say, I'm divinely compelled to announce the gospel of the kingdom to the other cities also. That's why God commissioned me. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. That is our Christian commission too, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. In the parable or illustrative story of the sower and the seed, 
Jesus drew on an Old Testament idea, just as he did when speaking of being born of the Spirit. Compare Isaiah chapter 32. Jesus was very familiar with the tremendously hopeful words of Jeremiah 30 and Jeremiah 31, chapters which brim over with the prospect of national joy and restoration for Israel following a future time of great tribulation called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30 verse 7. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 27 to 31, Jesus read these words. The days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will sow Israel and Judah with the seed of man and of cattle. As I watched over them with intent to pull down and to uproot, to demolish and destroy and inflict disaster, so now, at that future time, I will watch over them to build and to plant. The days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Sowing in the Bible is the symbol of prosperity and progeny. Now observe Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23. I will sow her, that's to say Israel, for myself in the land, and I will love her who was not loved. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Jesus knew these words well. He grew up reading them and meditating on them. And he saw as his task as Messiah, using the saving gospel of the kingdom, the sowing and planting of the international people of God in advance of the yet future recovery of Israel and Judah. Jesus went out to sow the seed of rebirth and conversion, the germ of future immortality. He sought to bring about the rebirth and change of mind among people, the offer being made first to Jews and then to the whole world. Via the Great Commission, Jesus was creating the new international people of God, the saints. The process requires a rebirth under the influence of the creative spirit of God working through the gospel of the kingdom. Sowing and planting of kings and rulers was a thoroughly biblical notion. For example, see Isaiah chapter 40, verses 23 and 24. And see above all, 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. And note the vastly underused verse in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, which reads, by his knowledge, my righteous one will make many right. And avoid the NIV watered-down version here. 
The matter of being born again through spirit and seed is developed in Jesus' famous parable of the sower and the seed. The seed which must be sown in our hearts and minds is identified and defined as the word or gospel about the kingdom. Matthew 13 verse 19. Luke abbreviates this to simply the word of God, Luke 8 verse 11, and Mark remembers it as simply the word, Mark 4 verse 14. Misdefining this gospel or word is the source of all deception and confusion. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, 11 and 12. Jesus began by defining the gospel as the word of God. Word of God is certainly not just a synonym for the Bible, which is called the scriptures. Then observe with the greatest attention the amazing teaching of Jesus. The seed along the footpath stands for those who hear the word, the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19, and then the devil comes and carries off the word or gospel from their hearts for fear that they should believe it and be saved. Luke 8, verse 12. This text I used to say to my students ought to be preached several times every Sunday. It's a brilliant summary of the saving gospel, the message which determines whether or not we eventually gain immortality in the kingdom. Yes, immortality, the hugest issue in our lives by far. The gospel, you see, is something to be obeyed. Those who refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, these are the unconverted, the unsaved. The gospel must be defined, of course, before it can be intelligently obeyed. Through much tribulation, for Jesus, the recipients of rebirth through that seed were and are being trained and groomed and prepared for royal office in the coming kingdom. That process of gaining a place in the future kingdom is to be through much tribulation, as we read in Acts 14, verse 22. Navy SEALs are trained and tested under the most severe and extreme conditions. The rulers of the future world government must also be tested and tried in various ways. Jesus and God are watching their people with, so to speak, X-ray eyes, testing the hearts and minds, an activity which Jesus now shares with Yahweh. Psalm 7, verse 9, Revelation 2, verse 23, and Jeremiah 17, verse 10. God is, as we read in John, seeking men and women to worship him 
in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. He wants people for his government who will give up everything for discipleship to his son. Jesus said that if we're not willing to give up all for him, we cannot even be his disciples. Luke 14, verse 26. He urged us on with these warning words. He said this, Strive or struggle to enter the kingdom through the narrow door. Luke 13, verse 24. Narrow is the gate and constricted the road that leads to life, and those who find them are few. Now mark the stark warning. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets, as to say, fake preachers, who come to you dressed up as sheep, while underneath they are savage wolves. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, but only those who do the will of my heavenly Father. When that day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Out of my sight, your deeds are evil. Matthew 7, verses 14 to 23. Once again, we see the need for the obedience of faith for salvation. We are first to obey the gospel of God about the kingdom by believing it. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Let no one then mislead you by saying that there's a different gospel for us. Paul always preached the same gospel of the kingdom as had Jesus. Paul preached it to Jews in Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verse 23. And he preached that same gospel of the kingdom to everyone else in Acts 28, verses 30 to 31. Compare with that Philip preaching the gospel of the kingdom in Acts 8, verse 12. Paul called his saving gospel by the same title as given to the gospel of the kingdom preached by Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Paul called it God's gospel in Romans 1, verse 1. And Romans 15 verse 16. Observe carefully that Paul made no distinction at all between the gospel of the grace of God and preaching the gospel about the kingdom. Acts 20 verses 24 and 25. To preach or fall for a gospel other than the one gospel of the kingdom is to put oneself under a curse. 
Galatians 1, verses 8 to 9. Not many seem to realize that Peter, who had listened for hours to the gospel teaching and preaching of his master, Jesus, repeated the whole account of the parable of the seed and the sower. We can read it in 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25. Since you have purified yourself in obedience to the truth, as to say you've believed and obeyed the gospel of the kingdom, Acts 8.12, producing a sincere affection towards your fellow Christians, then love one another wholeheartedly with all your strength. You have been born again, not of mortal, but of immortal seed, through the living and enduring word of God. As scripture says, all mortals are like grass, all their glory like wildflowers. Grass withers and flowers fall. But the word of the Lord, the gospel that is, endures forever. And this word is the gospel, that's to say of the kingdom, Matthew thirteen nineteen, which was preached to you. Peter was an excellent trained student and disciple of Jesus. He is listed in a leadership position among the twelve. Matthew 10, verse 2. He had heard the Messiah preach the kingdom gospel, the parable of the sower, over and over, even from a boat to folk who were standing on the beach. Peter here combines the idea of having been born again with the seed. Pause here to note that anyone who says you cannot be born again until the future resurrection is very much astray and to be avoided. You have been born again, not from perishable seed, but from the seed of immortality. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Ponder that amazing truth. Our physical lives derived from the seed of our fathers. Our immortality derives from the seed of immortality provided by the Creator God, the God and Father of Israel and of Jesus. No wonder then that you must be born again if you hope to live forever. John 3 verse 7 and having been born again, as Peter says, we are commanded to seek the milk of the word, so we are not unborn fetuses. Peter says, like the newborn infants you are, you should be craving for pure spiritual milk, so that you may thrive on it and grow up to salvation. For surely... You have tasted that the Lord is good. First Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Peter then goes on to give the people of God a clear idea of their true identity as believers. So come to Jesus, Peter says, to the living stone who was rejected by men, but chosen by God and of great worth to him. 
you also, as living stones, like those of a temple building, that is, you must be built up into a temple and form a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are, Peter said, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a dedicated nation, a people claimed by God for his own to proclaim the glorious deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people at all, but now you are God's people. Once you were outside his mercy, but now you are outside no longer. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Peter here has taken the identity markers of the ancient people Israel and applied them to the international true church. It was Israel who were designated to be priests and kings for God. Exodus 19 verse 6. Now it is the international church who assume that honor and privilege. That's not all. Israel was to be the special treasure belonging to God. And that impressive status is now given to the international church in Titus 2 verse 14 and 1 Peter 2 verse 9. The one nation which was Israel is now the one holy nation, the church. To these people Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, verse 32. The kingdom then was removed from Jews, hostile to Jesus, and given to the little flock who bear fruit from the seed of the kingdom. Matthew 21, verse 43. There is, of course, also a future recovery for now blinded and hardened ethnic Israelites. For that, see Romans chapters 9 to 11 and much prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Peter is thrilled, too, with the destiny of the faithful who, according to Paul in Romans 2, verse 7, are commanded to seek for glory and honor and immortality. Peter described our new birth, being born again, that is, into a living hope of the future kingdom. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter balances the present trials and tribulations which come to all believers with the greatness of the Christian's future destiny. Peter says, much more precious than perishable gold is faith which stands the test. These trials come to you so that your faith may prove itself worthy of all praise and glory 
and honor for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter 1 verse 7, yes, your faith. All this merely echoes the exceedingly great reward promised to Abraham, Genesis 15 verse 1. And read also Psalm 89 verses 11 to 27 and compare with those verses Colossians 3.24 where the inheritance is a reward to be given to faithful Christians. So you're not in this Christian business for nothing. You are to expect a fair repayment for your efforts. How very much Calvin resented theology like this. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was equally impressed with the fundamental teaching about how to gain immortality in the kingdom. He gave us a similar picture of rebirth, speaking instead of birth from a mother. Make no mistake, James said, my dear friends, every good and generous action comes from above, compare with that born from above in John 3 verse 5, from the Father who created the lights of heaven. With him there's no variation, no play of passing shadows. Of his own choice he brought us to birth by the word of truth, to be a kind of first fruits of his creation. James 1 verses 16 to 18. James had in mind, no doubt, the destiny of the Christians prophesied by Daniel. Daniel said, many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth will wake up, some to the life of the age to come poorly translated as everlasting or eternal life, which occurs some 40 times in the New Testament, and some to the reproach of eternal abhorrent that would be annihilation in the lake of fire. The wise leaders, Daniel went on to say, will shine like the bright vault of heaven and those who have guided the people in the true path will be like the stars forever and ever. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Yes, God has his stars, not, however, to be compared to the world's version. John and Paul. John, in 1 John 3, verse 9, speaks with equal passion of the seed of God in the Christian believer. The parable of the sower is his reference point, of course. God is the parent of all true believers by the transmission of the seed of the immortal God placed in the believer via the gospel of the kingdom, God's gospel. 1 John 5 verse 1 speaks of God as the begetter or parent, and the believers are those begotten, that is, born again from the gospel. Jesus, in 1 John 5 verse 18, is the unique Son who was begotten 
or brought into existence, and as God's Son by miracle begetting, he now protects the believers who have been begotten by God, that's to say regenerated. But don't read the King James Version here, which is badly corrupted in this verse. Paul spoke often of salvation as springing from the same gospel promise. Paul said, you, brothers and sisters, are children, i.e. born again of the promise. Galatians 4 verse 28. The promise in this context was the promise made to Abraham, as to say the Abrahamic covenant, which is the basis of the New Testament gospel. The gospel was preached ahead of time to Abraham. Paul said in Galatians 3 verse 8, The promise to Abraham was of property, land or kingdom, progeny, seed, the Messiah, and prosperity, every possible blessing. The promise to Abraham, said Paul, was that he will inherit the world. Romans 4 verse 13. See, for example, the promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world at our site, focusonthekingdom.org, and also my book, Our Fathers Who Aren't in Heaven. Here is the same gospel teaching in Ephesians 1 verse 13. Paul said, in Messiah, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed it. Compare with that Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, which says, Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Then Paul says, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, the promise, that is, of your future inheritance of the kingdom. Again, in Ephesians 2, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God. And the Greek there is, you were atheists in the world. He goes on to say that now as believers in the kingdom, they are part of the commonwealth of true Israel, the true international people of God, fellow citizens with the saints. Paul repeats the same theme over and over. In Galatians 3, verses 1 to 5, Paul urges them to understand that the Spirit is received in response to intelligent hearing with faith intelligent reception of the one gospel of the kingdom. The Spirit, as Peter said so well, is given to those who obey God. Acts 5 verse 32 And the Spirit is the truth. 1 John 5 verse 6 Since the words of Jesus are spirit and truth. John 6, verse 63. 
For a full list of all the synonymous terms describing the gospel, see the Appendix 1 in my The Amazing Aims and Claims of Jesus. Some 440 expressions define the one saving gospel of the kingdom. If you miss these, your understanding of the scripture is automatically stunted and impaired. Paul was always conscious of the seed and the sower. For example, when he referred to his own gospel work as planting and being watered, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and following. The importance of this topic. Many churchgoers think of Jesus only in terms of the one who died and rose. Those facts are, of course, absolutely central to the gospel. But they are not the whole gospel. The death and resurrection are picked out as, as Paul said, among the vital elements of the gospel. And Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3, where the Greek is en protis, among things of first importance. But the gospel was much earlier preached by Jesus, and for a long time Jesus said nothing at all about his death and resurrection. For that, see Matthew 16, verse 21. He began for the first time to speak of his death. Paul and Jesus preached the kingdom constantly. And Jesus had spoken about salvation in Luke 8.12 long before he had even mentioned his death and resurrection. Jesus laid the foundation of the entire gospel by announcing the gospel of the kingdom, which Mark defines as God's gospel. Jesus' first command requiring obedience was that we are to believe that kingdom gospel. That's where obedient faith begins. Romans 1 verse 5, Romans 16 verse 26, and Hebrews 5 verse 9. Jesus unpacked the great saving truth of the gospel of the kingdom in the parable of the seed and the sower. Jesus noted that none of his parables could be grasped unless the key parable of the sower was first understood. Mark 4, verse 13. Repentance, conversion, and new life in preparation for immortality in the coming kingdom are the product of that seed message of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, Jesus uttered these astonishing words. To you, true believers, God has given the mystery, that's to say the revealed plan of the kingdom. But those who are on the outside get everything in parables, in that case inscrutable enigmas and puzzles, so that, and here, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, in order that they may see and not perceive and hear 
but fail to understand. Otherwise, if they did comprehend and understand, they would then be able to repent and be forgiven by God. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. This is a staggering preaching, echoing Jesus' first words in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and verses 14 to 15. This is called the beginning of the gospel. And Jesus said, repent and believe God's gospel about the kingdom of God. So in the absence of a clear understanding of the kingdom gospel, repentance and forgiveness are not possible. Luke 8.12 is equally a riveting teaching from Messiah Jesus. Jesus said there, the devil knows very well what is at stake in the matter of responding intelligently and believing the gospel of the kingdom as preached by Jesus and all the New Testament writers. Jesus said, when anyone hears, that's to say is exposed to the word of God, the kingdom of God gospel, Matthew 13, 19, Mark chapter 1, verses 14, 15, then the devil comes and snatches away the message from his heart so that he cannot believe it and be saved. Luke 8 verse 12. The New Testament church faithfully preached that same gospel of the kingdom and acquired belief in the kingdom gospel message before men and women were ready to be baptized in water and become part of the body of Christ. This is the whole point of Acts chapter 8 verse 12, easy to remember in view of Luke 8 verse 12, just discussed. Once the gospel of the kingdom has been grasped, believers must persist in obedient faith until the end. Some people, Jesus taught, believe for a while and then fall away. Luke 8 verse 13, the seed message of the kingdom of God must be retained and must produce the necessary fruit, which results in a successful entrance into or inheritance of possession of the kingdom of God when it comes. In the United States, after a president is elected, before he takes office, he chooses his cabinet, seeking the most qualified and talented personnel for the various jobs in government. An exact parallel is found in the biblical teaching and preaching of the kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah and King of the kingdom, was, and I quote here, about his father's business. Luke 2 verse 49, and he still is to this day, selecting those who will be honored with governmental positions in the first ever really successful world government. Daniel 7 verse 18, 22 and 27, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2, 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, 
Revelation 5 verse 10 and Revelation 20 verse 1 to 6. Luke 19 17 says, Excellent servant, well done. You are to be in charge of ten towns. May your kingdom come. So Jesus said we are to pray in Matthew 6 verse 10. The kingdom of God frames the Lord's Prayer as the central and most important topic in God's great world plan. Daniel 7 verse 27 is an astonishing vision of the world and its societies as they will be when the seventh trumpet announcing the return of Messiah sounds, as in Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18. No wonder then that Jesus in Luke 8, verse 8, as he gave his parable of the sower, raised his voice to make sure that his point would be clearly understood by everyone.